Well, open your Bibles this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. I love Jesus Christ. I hope you do too. How much does Jesus mean to you? I mean, what's he worth? I can remember right after I came to Christ, I began sharing the Lord with with my unsaved friends, and I had absolutely zero Christian friends. I, I didn't know anyone who truly followed Christ as far as friends knew. I, I knew my mother, I knew Theta Lewis, I knew Tracy, but I really didn't have any personal acquaintances that, that, that were believers. And when I came to the Lord, I began to, began to share with them. It was very authentic, likely theologically clumsy, but, but it didn't matter because I, I just wanted them to, to know the Lord. I can remember one friend in particular after I shared with him, thanking me for, for caring. And, and, but then he said, whatever I found uh, wouldn't last. He wrote me, a, wrote me a two-page letter. And in his estimation, I, I'd found religion because of the difficulties that I was going through. And, and beyond that, it was, it was right before winter and... And he said when the weather changed and spring came, I, I would be back out with all of my friends living the way that I did, I did be, before. And, and that was okay. You know, if, good for me. For whatever reason, I can remember my specific answer to him. I, I said, no, I, I mentioned his name. I said, I found something real. I found something that never ends. That was two and a half decades ago, and the Lord Jesus is more real to me today than He was on that day that I I called upon His name. My friend was like the Apostle Paul before, before his conversion. He thought that salvation had to do with dutiful practices or, or a set of rituals, like going to church or, in his words, finding religion. But God says it's infinitely more than that. It, it's, it's knowing a person, and that person is, is your creator. And when you truly mean Him, everything changes. What, what you once viewed as tremendous value, you, you now see is worthless. And, and what you didn't value at all before becomes your all-consuming treasure. Or as one put it, the God that you once dismissed and, and hated, you begin to love. And, and the sin that you once embraced and loved, you begin to hate. And both of those grow. What is Jesus Christ worth? He is true treasure. And that treasure is exactly what the Apostle Paul will describe for us today. If someone would ask you for a, a biblical, succinct definition of the gospel, what's the gospel? Give it to me in a few words. You would probably turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He, and he rose from the dead according to, to the Scriptures. And you would be right. But if you would ask for a description of what that looks like for, for a person to embrace that, uh, what goes on in their heart, I would point to you, uh, I would point you to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through, through, through 11. You see, 1 Corinthians 15.3 is the factual basis for your faith. Jesus did do all of those things, and without those things, it, Paul says you, your, your faith is vain, you have no salvation. 
But Philippians chapter 3 shows what goes on inside a person when they embrace that truth. And that's what Paul is, is describing. Have you ever heard someone say, you can't see my heart, you don't know whether, where I stand for, with, with God, and, and it's true I can't see your heart, but, but, but whatever is in, going on inside of your heart, this, this is what it would look like right here. And we just started the sixth section of Philippians that begins in chapter 3, verse 1, goes through the whole chapter, where Paul gives the church some serious warnings. And in verse 3, he reminds the Philippians that the true Christians, he tells them what true Christians are compared to the counterfeit, true Christians are those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus alone, and they put no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul offers his own experience prior to coming to Christ as the ultimate example to that in in verses 4 through 11. In verses 4 through 6, which is what we looked at last time, Paul tells us what he lost coming to Christ. In verses 8 through 11 this morning, he describes what he gained. And that's what we're going to look at today. And right in the middle, in verse 7, is, is Christ. He is the axis around which this, this whole section rotates. The entire Christian life revolves around Him. He's mentioned nine times in, in these five verses by, by name or or pronoun. And we saw last time, God is not impressed even with the most pristine religious record or the most arduous human efforts to, in order to try to reach Him. Religion and all of its, form, all of its forms is nothing more than, than our attempt to manipulate God. And it's offensive to Him because, because it pulls Him down. It believes that you can pull Him down to a level that we could reach Him somehow, somehow by ritual or, or doing certain things. Reach Him by our own efforts. The Bible teaches that salvation comes to us by God's grace alone. It's received through faith alone, and that's in the person and work of Christ alone. And a person who realizes that will forsake all their human efforts to justify themselves. While God is not impressed by anything you or I have to offer, He is completely satisfied. He is well pleased with His Son, which He declared as baptism. And that realization, the realization of your spiritual bankruptcy leads to the obtaining of of true spiritual riches, which is the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. It's been said, if you come to God as a king, He'll send you away as a pauper. But if you come to God as a pauper, He'll send you away as a king. And Paul is going to detail for us the spiritual wealth, the spiritual riches that God sends us away with what we receive when we come to to Christ Jesus, the description of spiritual wealth. And Paul actually gives us four descriptions of this surpassing spiritual wealth in Christ in verses 8 through 11. He said there is the fortune of knowing Him in verse 8. There's the treasure to be found in Him in verse 9. There's the wealth of fellowship alongside Him in verse 10. And then there's the prize in being raised with Him in verse 11. Let's look at the first one. You'll get these one at a time. The first description of spiritual wealth is the fortune of knowing Him. Look, if you would, at verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. 
Verses 7 and 8, we looked at verse 7 last time. Verses 7 and 8 uh, uh, consist of four clauses which, which point, point out both what Paul lost and, and, and that which he gained in salvation. And in verses 8 through 11, we, we talked about the, the, the accounting ledger last time. Verses 8 through 11, this is the positive side. And it only has one thing on the positive side. It's Jesus Christ. Verse 8 starts with, with several particles if you're reading it in the Greek, and they're strung together in a very unusual uh, uh, combination. It, 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 so it's difficult to translate. It's like Paul took, took these, these particles and, and he put them down inside of, a, of, a, of a, a Yahtzee cup and shook them out and, 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 he, and he threw them. It, it, he does this to emphasize a point. In verse 7, he says, he counted all that he gained as loss. It's a, it's a perfect verb. And now here's the particles. And beyond all of that, he keeps on counting all things as loss. It's a present verb. It's for emphasis. Then you have the, the before meeting Christ evaluation, what he trusted in, his inheritance and his achievements. And then you have the, the audit from meeting Christ at the beginning of verse 7. He counted it up in, in the past and the results stand true today. And, and those things are lost. And now the new ledger is found in, in verse 8 and beyond. And he goes on counting all things as liability compared to Christ. What he once saw as profit at uh, profit is not just loss, it's, it's now liability, it's disadvantage, it, 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 it's rubbish. Paul says he, rega- he regards his inherited privileges and his personal achievement as loss, but now he considers everything that he might potentially boast in harmful. And The present tense means he, he goes on counting it that way as he lives and loves the, the, the Lord. This passage is significant, though, not, not because of these, these particles. It's significant because this is the internal record of Paul's conversion. It's his salvation experience. It's what's going on in the Apostle Paul's heart, and it's very personal. He uses I and my many times in this. He uses his personal testimony. He's not just spouting theology. He, he, he's saying something that, that happened to him. And likely, whenever you think of Paul's testimony, your mind naturally goes to, to Acts chapter 9, doesn't it? When, when, he was, when he was knocked off the horse on the, on the road to Damascus, and, and, and rightly so. Acts chapter 9, Paul is, is asking for, for letters from the, uh, to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found any belonging to the way. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, so these were followers of Christ. He says both men and women, they might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's persecuting the church. He talked about that. As, a, as far as zeal is concerned, he's a persecutor. And that's what he was doing in Acts 9. But then in verse 3, his conversion. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told what you must do. MacArthur said whenever you read that, you may think that salvation is, is all external. You're, you're just going along in life, and all of a sudden God zaps you, and, 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 he, and you fall to the ground, and after you get up and spit the dirt out, out of your mouth, you, you start serving God as an apostle, if that was the only record that, that we have. But, and Acts tells you, 
part of the story. It's the observation of Paul's conversion from the outside. But Philippians 3 is what's going on inside the heart. It's his mind, his will, and his motions. All of that's being calculated here. And in the sovereign act of salvation, human faculties are not bypassed. They're completely involved. Acts 9 shows the God side. Philippians 3 shows the human response. And they go together. And Paul says there was, a, there was an internal convicting of his sin and, and, and what he lacked. And then there was a, a, an intellectual evaluating of what you must give up and what it meant to follow Christ. And, and he says, I counted it as loss. Jesus said, when, when a man begins to build a tower, he, he doesn't do that without calculating the cost. The Apostle Paul calculated the cost. And then there was a willful acting here uh, uh, where, where he chose. He said, for, the, for his sake I've suffered the loss of, of all things. For his sake. This is his I have decided to follow Jesus moment. Choose this day whom you'll serve. You must choose. It's, a, it's an act of the will. Salvation is described in 2 Corinthians. He brings both of these together. The divine act of God and salvation and then, the, and then your response to that initiation. 2 Corinthians 17. Uh, or sorry, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Describes salvation as the, as the light of God invading the darkness of your heart. We, we sing Wesley's song, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. But then the rest of the song, after the dungeon filled with light, I, I woke and followed you. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let light shine. That's a quote from Genesis 1, 3. It's a reference to creation. And God created out of nothing by His command, ex nihilo, and by fiat, out of nothing, ex nihilo, by fiat, He spoke, He commanded. And it's no mistake that Paul uses that reference to your salvation. There was nothing in you. In the same way, there's no light in you. And in salvation, God commands light to shine in your darkened heart. And and if God had not done that, you would remain in the dark. You would remain hopeless. And that's what happened to the Apostle Paul in Acts 9. But then by that light... You're now able to see, and you begin to see what, what you lack and what you need, which is righteousness, and that's what's going on in Philippians 3. And the two common errors in salvation leaves one of those out. I mean, don't think that salvation is just God kind of lays the possibility out there for you, and you just have to be smart enough to choose it. You must be born from above. You must be converted. You cannot be converted apart from the sovereign work of God. But don't think salvation is something passive where He just kind of zaps you from heaven and, and then you don't even know what happened to you. It involves your faculties. It involves your mind. It involves your will. It involves your emotions, just like the Apostle Paul here. And it's a choice that you'll never forget. Because when that happens, you come to know God in a personal way. Look at what, uh, what it says at verse 8, in, in verse 8 again. More than that, 
I count all things to be lost in, the, in view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul shows what he gained in the exchange. Notice he, 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 he look, that's how personal this is. I mean, Paul talks about Jesus Christ all the time. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he says, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is talking about the personal side of knowing God. Notice how personal this is. Paul says what he gains, what you gain in the great exchange is a personal knowledge of Christ. The word is gnosis. He doesn't even use the verb here. It's it's the noun form. It means an experiential knowledge of, uh, of knowing someone by personal means. In the Old Testament, this word... The, the Hebrew counterpart was used for the euphemism for a, for a man knowing his wife, the intimacy. Adam knew his wife. It's the same idea. Jesus used it in, in John 10, verse 14, when he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. It, it's, it's not some intellectual knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. And knowing God that way, knowing the the one true and living God, is the whole theme of the Old Testament. Over and over in the events of the the Old Testament, what happened to to Israel, it was was said so, so that Israel and all the other nations would know that the Lord, He is God. And that's the idea. In 1 Kings 8, 60, Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple... David can't build the temple. Solomon does. And he says, not just the temple, but the law and everything, even raising up of Israel, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. And there's no one else. In Exodus 10:2, when God speaks to Moses, the events of, of Exodus and what he's going to do in, in Pharaoh's heart was all so that, God says, so that you may know that I am, am the Lord. The prophets declare the same thing. I mean, the prophet, if you think of the prophet, a prophet of the Old Testament, you probably think of Elijah. And Elijah praying, when he challenged the prophets of Baal, after he doused the altar with, with water, he bows his head to pray. And what does he pray? He says in 1 Kings 18, 37, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. He's not saying just know that you're the creator. He's saying that they may know you, that they may acknowledge that you're God, that they may be in a right relationship with you. And if that doesn't convince you, the very core, the very essence of the new covenant has this idea of knowing God. What happens in the new covenant? Jeremiah 31 But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and in their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he defines what he means by that in verse 34, in the second part there. What does it mean, I will be their God and they'll be my people? They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. What's the purpose of the Old Old Testament? To know the Lord, so that people will know the Lord. When the new covenant comes, they'll not teach them again, each man, to know the Lord, for they will all know me. In this kind of way that Paul's talking about here. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. 
And it's no mistake that Jesus echoes these very words, the words of the new covenant in John 17, 3, right before he goes to the cross. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that that they may know you and the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God is what the Lord requires. That's how you define salvation, not sacrifices or religious rituals. None of those are going to get you there. Christ is not some aloof deity, uh, some religious idea distant in the cosmos somewhere. He's a personal God who's in divine fellowship with you in salvation. That's what is of surpassing value. It's something of incomparable worth to know God. It's unparalleled. Paul is saying it's not just intellectual understanding like, like what accountants do. It's a deep personal knowledge whereby I come to know Jesus Christ and I fellowship with Him. Have you ever experienced that? Do you know God? You ever spoke to Him like a friend? Sensed Him? You talk with Him that way? Like you know Him? Is there a real personal knowledge because that's a true relationship? Or is it distant? like an ideal or a high deity, far, far away. Paul says those who truly come to Christ in salvation, what happens in Christ is God restores the walk with Him in the cool of the day, just like He did with Adam. He fellowshiped with Him. And in Christ, that's that's restored. And there's no fortune on earth that rivals the value of knowing God. That's spiritual wealth. Let me give you the second one. The second description of spiritual wealth. It doesn't end there. He says that there's treasure to be found in Him. In Him. Look at verse 9. He goes on. And I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul now expounds on what he means to to know Christ. He moves from knowing Christ to being in Christ. You see that? He says that I may be found in Him. I can remember an old country preacher describing uh, being in Christ like like God putting you in a rain barrel. He said when when you stand by yourself, God just sees your sin and and when you get in Christ, it's like he, he puts you inside of a rain barrel, and all God sees is, is the barrel, and you get a bath while you're in there too. Well, being in Christ is way more than being put in a rain barrel. But I understand what he was trying to say. In Him, being placed in Him, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. You become a new creation in Him, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new Creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You were chosen in Him. Ephesians 1.4 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. And Paul explains exactly what he means by in Him. He uses in Him, and in Him gets you all kinds of benefits. But he explains exactly the benefits that he means of being in Him. Verse 9, we may be found in Him. What do you mean, Paul? being in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ. Explains what he means in the rest of the verse. In him means in his righteousness, not our own. Paul wants to be found in him, in his righteousness, not a righteousness derived from the law, which he now understands is loss and and is rubbish because it cannot please God. Charles Spurgeon said, uh, The moment a man believes in Jesus Christ, he is in the righteousness of Christ, perfectly righteous. And he's put upon him the, the Savior's garments. And he, he told a story of a Mr. Weaver in his, in his own church that met a very poor man one day who, who was in rags, and, and he used uh, Mr. Weaver and this poor man as an illustration. He said Mr. Weaver, being a Christian, wished to, be, to befriend the poor man, so he told him that, that if he would come, to, come home with him, he would give him a suit of clothes. And so the rich man, when he got home, and the poor man stayed downstairs, the rich man went upstairs and, and took off his suit. And he sent the poor man upstairs after he came down and told him that he would find a suit in, a, in the bedroom upstairs in which he could put on. And so after the poor man had put on the clothes, he left his rags behind. He, he came back downstairs and says, Well, Mr. Weaver, what do you think of me? Well, Mr. Weaver said, I think you look very respectable. Oh, yes. But Mr. Weaver, said the poor man, It is not me. I am not respectable. It is your clothes that are respectable. And so added Mr. Weaver, and so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. He meets us covered with the rags and the filth of sin, and he tells us to go and put on the best robe of his perfect righteousness. And when we come down with that on, we say, Lord, what do you think of me? And he says, while you are fair, my love, there is not a spot on you. And we answer, it is not me. It's your righteousness. I am comely because thou art comely. I am beautiful because thou art beautiful. And that righteousness comes to us from God on the basis of faith. That's what Paul says here. Being in Christ, you have that righteousness, and it comes by faith. Look at verse 9. Be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from from God. Paul now describes how, how we gain that righteousness, how we get it, and where it comes from. He says that righteousness comes to us through faith. How do we get the robes of Christ's righteousness? He says that righteousness comes through faith. And it's a righteousness that's provided by or from God. You and I need, what you and I need to get to heaven is righteousness. Yes, you need your, your sins forgiven. That's the negative side of the equation. You need your sins forgiven. But if all, of you, all that you have is your sins forgiven, you're not getting into heaven according to the Bible. You need righteousness to get into heaven. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with, with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You need righteousness. You need holiness to get into heaven. But the Bible also says there's none righteous, no, not one. So unless something happens for you, unless someone provides something to you that you don't have on your own, you're not getting in. And Paul says that it comes from somewhere else and that somewhere else comes from Jesus Christ and that God provides it. And he also says that the way you gain it, the way that you receive it, the way you put your arms into the, into the robe is, is through faith alone. 
And faith is not, not simply sincerity or intellectual belief. The demons believe and, and tremble. The Muslims who flew the planes uh, in, into the trade center that we, we memorialized uh, 9-11 last week, they were sincere. Faith must have a secure object, one that can back up what is promised. And the Bible says biblical faith is your believing response to a promise of God. Faith is your response to something that God accomplished, that God promised. And, and that's what connects you to, to, to that promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and you shall be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and, uh, while He may be found. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God's raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul goes on to explain exactly what he means by that in, in Romans 10. He says, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. There's the believing, there's the faith part. And with the mouth he confesses. He acts on it, resulting in salvation. And watch the promise. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith is expressed in what God did in Jesus, and faith is expressed through your calling and your confessing. And you have faith in what God said He has done and would do. And then you act on that. He doesn't just kind of throw it out of heaven and hit you upside the head with it. He proclaims to you the promise of the gospel. You're a sinner. And without Christ, you're, you're doomed. You're destined for hell. But God, being rich in mercy, He promises through Christ that, that He'll forgive you of your sins and, and, and He'll provide a way into heaven. And that's proclaimed that, that, if you'll, that you'll believe in that and you'll call upon, call upon His name and trust in that, then He'll save you. And then you must do that. Do you have that kind of faith? Is it sure? Is it anchored in what God alone could do and what God alone has done in Christ? If you do, then you have the record of His righteousness. You've put your arms in His robe, even though you're not righteous underneath. And because of that union with Christ, being in Him and receiving that righteousness... You're able to fellowship with Him as you live. It's the third description that Paul gives here of spiritual wealth. It's the wealth of fellowship alongside Him. Get with it, verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable or being conformed to His death. This is about fellowship. Now Paul has already mentioned in verse 8 the, the knowing God as a, as a personal Savior. Salvation is knowing God. But now he explains what he means by knowing Him. How does that work out in life? What's it like to know God? What is it like to, to walk with God in the cool of the, uh, of the day? This, this is a perfect uh, purpose clause here. It's followed by the detail. So that I may know Him. What does that mean, Paul? Both the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. 
He's explaining or giving content to what knowing Christ experientially means. Knowing Him means the power of Christ's resurrection at work in you, in your present mortal body. Uh, Knowing Him means the union with Him in suffering for His namesake. To know God means to be saved. But knowing His power and His fellowship and being conformed to His dying is a deep fellowship that you experience from it. I mean, it's hard to explain into words fellowshipping with God unless you've experienced that yourself. Have you ever tried to explain to an unbeliever what it feels like? I mean, I don't know another word. Feels like, experience, to walk with Christ, to be aware of Him and know that He's aware of you and be in fellowship with Him? Theologians call it, call it progressive sanctification, whereby in union with Christ, you're conformed to His image as you live. I mean, the penalty of sin is dealt with at... It's salvation, that's justification. The, the power of sin is overcome through your life, that's sanctification. That's what Paul's talking about here. And then the very presence of sin is removed when, when you die and you're raised. That's glorification. It's all part of salvation, past, present, and future. And that's much more than just theology to Paul or any believer. It's a deep, personal blessing that he sees as, as a wealth from being saved. This is not a cold doctrine. Uh, To Paul, it's a life-giving reality. He gets up every morning and he talks to the living God. He fellowships with Him. He experiences His power. And Paul says, saw the Christian life as the blessing of living every day in personal fellowship with Jesus, doing His bidding and being associated with His work. This is my pastor's favorite verse. I texted him last night said, I just want to thank you, Joe, for, for preaching the gospel to me. I'm preaching Philippians 3 tomorrow, and I can still hear you quote this in my head from the pulpit. I can still hear his cadence. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable to his death. And He said it with an aching like, like Paul did here. He responded back, I'll pray for you. The Holy Spirit will use you tomorrow. Paul knew the fellowship of the law. Paul knew what it was like to get up every day as a a Pharisee and fellowship with the law. He knew what it was like to to try to depend upon the power of the law. He knew what it was like to to be in union with the law. He was a Pharisee. He kept the law and he kept all of the the extra things too. And he knew that it had no power at all. He didn't fellowship. He, He didn't feel the power of the resurrection. It was a dead code. It couldn't do nothing in his heart to save him or produce holy desires. No rituals can do that. They can't produce holy desires. He can't change you inside. He knew that the law had no way to overcome death. But now he knows Jesus. And he knows that Jesus does. And he wanted a deeper fellowship with God in all of those ways. And and Paul had been given the Holy Spirit, the, the The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lived in Him. And Paul says, I live for knowing that power operating in me. I can't wait to get up every morning for that power to operate in me, overcoming sin and bearing fruit in my life. Have you ever experienced the power of Christ? The power of Christ in overcoming sin? Not being sinless, but you came up against sin of some kind? 
You ever been delivered from some sin that you had no power yourself to overcome? Have you grown in understanding spiritual things in a way that's beyond human understanding? It's the power of Christ. I mean, you sincerely trust God for things that, that, he, that he is necessary. Not just nice, He's necessary to fulfill. Uh, those are, are unnatural to the fallen man. And they're the evidence of God's power operating in you. Paul says, I long for that. And he also says, I, I live for being associated with him, that, that in my suffering he fellowships with me. That's the second part. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul's not just talking about here being an outlet for the world's hatred, and surely you'll be that. You will be an outlet for the world's hatred because they hate Christ. Surely that's part of it. It's the reason the suffering comes. But notice Paul says the fellowship of his sufferings. Only Christians can know that kind of suffering because it's directly related to the Lord. But the fellowship Paul is talking about here is the intimate fellowship that you gain as a direct result of suffering. You know God in a way in those moments of suffering as a believer that it's impossible to know him in any other way. He meets you in the suffering and communes with you. MacArthur was very helpful to me here. He, he said the deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the living Christ are at times of intense suffering. And that suffering derives a believer to him. You flee to him in those moments. And there you find a merciful high priest and a sympathetic companion who faced all the trials and temptations that you face. And He is thus uniquely qualified to help our weakness and infirmities. God fellowships with you in your suffering, and in that submission, in that suffering, you experience that fellowship in a way that's indescribable. And it is of precious value. Have you ever made the statement, I, I don't know how people make it, or I don't know how people do whatever that don't know the Lord. That's what you're talking about, meeting you in that way. And that fellowship with you in your suffering, both of those things together brings a submission where you're conformed to the Lord's death. Look at how he ends this. Being made conformable or being conformed to his death. King James gets it right here. Being made conformable uh, to, to his death. Paul's actually referring back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Verse 5, you remember verse 5? Have this attitude or this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus? Who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form, the morphe of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul reuses a, a word that relates here, soon morphizo. It, it, he, he's connecting back to, to Christ. He says, I long to be conformed to that same pattern. The pattern of Christ who existed in the form of God but was conformed to the image of a slave and and was found in human likeness. He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Paul says, I want to be made conformable to that kind of death, to that kind of life that leads there. 
He says his desire is to follow the same model as his Lord. He wants to be conformed to that same image, the the image of Christ. Christ was conformed to the image of a man in order to serve. Paul wants to be conformed to the image of Christ who who willingly left everything to come to us and and to give give his life away. That's what he wants to become. He wants to become like him in that. To suffer on behalf of the gospel and for the sake of others. And to long for that is spiritual wealth. Spiritual wealth. Indescribable spiritual wealth. Because in death, for a person who, who has that kind of spiritual wealth, in, in death you, you, gain, you gain the greatest prize of all. The fourth description that Paul gives here in verse 11 is the description of spiritual wealth. The prize of being raised with Him. Look at verse 11. In order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The, the final surpassing value that Paul mentions is something that he longs for beyond this life. It's, it's glorification. And I don't know if you've recognized this or not, but, but, but this passage reflects all three aspects of your salvation. Justification, righteousness by, uh, through faith provided to you by God in verse 9. Sanctification, experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection as well as participating in His sufferings in verse 10. Glorification here. Bodily resurrection in verse 11. Here is the final leg in Paul's theology stool that he's resting on. The promise of the resurrection. And he says... In order that, or, or if somehow I may obtain the, the resurrection of the dead. He's not expressing a lack of confidence, but a liberal dose of humility. Paul's not forgotten what, what it was like when he trusted in himself as a Pharisee for the resurrection. I mean, that's fresh in his mind. He just got done talking about that. And so even now with the security of Christ, he expresses humility as, as if to say how unworthy he is of this glorious end. But that is his glorious end. And it's very fascinating in verse 11. The phrase, the resurrection from the dead, is, is interesting. It's unique, in fact. It literally says that I may attain to the resurrection out of or from among the corpses. I mean, when you think of the resurrection, I mean, you know that you're coming up out of the grave, but you don't normally think of the resurrection of, of, of coming out from among the corpses. But this is exactly what Paul says here. And the Bible says for believers, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what happens for believers. In the moment of death, a separation takes place. The spirit separates from the body. The spirit returns to God who gave it, and the, and the body goes into the ground. The Bible says flesh and blood can't enter the, the kingdom of heaven. Meaning this body wasn't made for the heavenly abode. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. It's, it's perfectly designed. This body, this human body, it's amazing. It's perfectly designed for the earth. It, it breathes air, it functions with gravity, it, it walks, it feels, it, it sees, it's, it's amazing. But at death, that body goes into the ground and decays or something else destroys the flesh. And it lays with all the other corpses. Death is the end that every man faces. But as amazing as that body is, Paul longs for another body that's even better. 
A spiritual body, meaning a body that is perfectly designed for heaven, a body just like His Lord's. And that body will rise one day from the one that's placed into the ground, from among the corpses. Don't miss the most profound part of what Paul is saying here. All bodies go in the ground as corpses, but only a believer will be called up out from among the corpses and be given a new body at the trumpet of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll rise from among the corpses. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be or forever be with the Lord. Paul says that is treasure. That is a surpassing value uh, compared to anything this life has to offer. To be in paradise with God in a glorified body, that is true treasure. But did you know that the Bible also tells us what will happen to those corpses that are left behind in the ground? It says there's another resurrection coming. There's a resurrection unto life and there's a resurrection unto death. And Revelation 20, verse 11 says, describing this second resurrection for the rest of those corpses, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and and hell gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, everyone according to their deeds. And then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. Will you rise from among the corpses on this day? I hope not. You don't have to. Will you rise from among the corpses like the Apostle Paul and like all believers? Will you rise whenever Christ calls His own to meet Him in the air? Or will you rise with the corpses to stand before God's great bar of judgment one day? Does does coming to Christ cost you? Yes, it does. Will following Him, your life, cost you something? Could it cost you friends? Could it cost you career? Could it cost you any number of other things? It's possible. But whatever you give up is not loss. It's liability (laughs) compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Because when you come to Him, you'll know Him. You'll fellowship with Him. He'll clothe you in His righteousness. He'll walk with you in the cool of the day, in the midst of your suffering, in whatever it is. And, and, and He'll come for you one day, whenever the dead rise. 
believers rise from amongst the corpses. That spiritual wealth that he offers, that's available to you by faith alone. Won't you bow your heads? The robe of righteousness is, is held out by God the Father. It's held up just like a, just like a, a suit jacket. It, whenever you're trying one on at the department store, and you're beckoned, you're invited by, by God to, to put your arms in the two holes, and God will drape you with Christ's righteousness. But you have to put your arms in the holes. You willingly lose your life in order to gain it. It's not a grudging relinquishment. It's a, it's a joyful choice. But you have to come. God's not going to zap you. You've heard. And you must act. Father, I come before you this morning and I thank you for this truth that you have proclaimed before us. Oh, apart from you, we are hopeless, but you work, you save, and I am so thankful for that. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning or watching, that they sense that, that knowledge of you, that, that you, are, you are God, and that, that they're in the dark, that the lights have come on, that, that's you, that's your work. And I pray, Father, that, that they would then come place their faith in you. They would confess and believe and be saved. Thank you as believers that you don't leave us alone. After that, you have many promises available, including fellowship and ultimately glorification. I long for the day when I look upon your face. We all do, Lord. We ask your blessings, even now in Jesus' name.